Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is our last Sunday before Christmas. Several days till Christmas, but it is our last Sunday before Christmas. And we're kind of bringing our series to a close, The Messenger and the Messiah. It's been a great study, a wonderful series. I love looking back at all this information and and looking at the grand story of the Bible and how God has prophesied it through His prophets and how everything is coming to be just as He said it would. And we've kind of gone through mainly, primarily hitting uh, Luke, the birth narrative of the messenger, John the Baptist, and the birth narrative of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and how all these things took place, and looking at the connections of the Old Testament to the New Testament, the years of silence that were broken there as Gabriel came to announce that the messenger would now be born. Uh, but, but Luke actually leaves out uh, one particular story, but Matthew puts this one in. So today we're going to look over at Matthew. So if you don't mind, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. The Gospels, for the most part, the three, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are extremely similar and they're the information they carry, but uh, Matthew does carry a different story, a story that is not found in Luke. And uh, we are going to touch on this one today. And it's going to be Matthew chapter 2, read uh, verse 1 through 12 together, then we'll look back at that. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, reading through verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child." And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother and fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. God, thank you for letting us gather together today to focus on how you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Thank you for allowing us to worship together as the body of Christ. We uh, worship you. We glorify you. We magnify your holy name. Open our hearts and open our ears, open our eyes, that we may understand the word that is presented to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if we look back at Matthew chapter 2, just the first couple of verses here, he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him." 
Now, we've covered this in the past, but it's always worthy of mentioning that Bethlehem was an extremely important city. Why was it to be so important? It is because, and, and of course they pick up on it here, but Micah 5.2 is the prophecy about where the Messiah would be born. And throughout the Old Testament, God speaks to His prophets. The prophets then speak, and they give us details about what the Messiah is going to be like, how He is going to live, characteristics about Him, even where he is going to be born at. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago that was highly significant that Mary, while, while at the very end of her pregnancy, ready to give birth, was able to make it to Bethlehem. If she would have given birth before they got to Bethlehem, then it would not have been the Messiah, right? But God is fully in control, even control over the womb of Mary. And they get to Bethlehem and there baby Jesus is born. But the Bethlehem, uh, is highly significant because it is the city of David, the very same city that David was born in. And the Bible tells us over and over that the Messiah, the Savior, would come from the line of David. And sure enough, he is actually born in the city of David. We also looked at what that city's name actually means. It means house of bread. That's what they were known for is, is harvesting the crops and making bread for others around them. And then how significant is that, that Jesus himself is does refer to himself as the bread of life that is sent down from God. He compares himself to the manna uh, that was the, in the Old Testament where uh, Moses and the Israelites received from God. And so we have the bread of life actually born in the city of bread. But this prophecy is known by them that Bethlehem is highly significant. They know this is where the Messiah is going to be born. Let me read you this. Shane Rosenthal a professor of Westminster Theological Seminary now and a Jew by birth, says that he remembers well the failed attempts of his Christian friends to witness to him growing up. But during college, he picked up the Old Testament and gave it a quick look, something that he had not done since he was only 13, and happened to, pull, to open up to the book of Micah. He happened to read Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says of that night... I had seen all of the animated Christmas specials on TV year after year, so I knew what the implications of Bethlehem were. But no one had ever shared with me the connection between the Jewish Messiah and the actual coming of the Christ, the one named Jesus. In short, I became an overnight convert. In fact, the very next day, I went out and purchased a copy of the New Testament and began reading it with a believing heart. Why? Was this man so radically changed by reading this one verse? Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. As now this, this Protestant Christian uh, professor realizes that this is highly significant. That, that he had never been shown the tie-ins. He had been shown the Old Testament, but even still to this day, the, the Jews who, who still abide by the Old Testament and do not look at the New Testament, even when they partake of the Passover meal, they have a seat reserved at their house for the coming messenger. They still think the messenger is coming. They do not acknowledge that the messenger has come, that the silence was broken, that Gabriel appeared. Zacharias and Elizabeth gave birth to the messenger. They deny that the Messiah is here. But as this young man, now in college at that time, uh, reads this verse for the first time, he understands that, wait a minute, 
This, this, this one they call Jesus that my Christian friends talk about, this, he, he was born in Bethlehem. So it causes him to begin to realize that the Old Testament has been fulfilled. The messenger has come. The Messiah has come. And now he's a professor, a teacher of accurate and proper theology as he sees the full connection of the Bible, the Old Testament fulfilled here with the messenger and with the Messiah actually coming. Um, this passage we just read, does say, Behold, wise men from the east. Now, it's not that important, but it is kind of interesting to, to look at that in verse 1, uh, we see now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold. This is highly significant that it's for them. Something of great interest is happening. It doesn't, if you take that word out, it would just say, you know, in the days of Herod the king, wise men come from the east to Jerusalem and just read straight through. But it's behold, it's attention, alert, wake up. That something highly significant has happened here. Something has entered into Jerusalem that has everyone's attention. So it's all eyes are on these who have come from the east. Where were they from? That is a good question. Uh, how many were there? That is a good question as well. How do they know this star signified that the king of the Jews had been born? These are all excellent questions that kind of come up as we study this portion of the scripture. And honestly, there's not a lot of details given here in the word of God. We know they came from afar. There's a, that old fireman joke. They came from a fire. The first fireman in the Bible, you know, they came from a fire. No, it's afar. They came from afar. They came from a long distance. Speculated they came from Persia, maybe Babylon. But around a thousand miles away, they would have journeyed to Jerusalem. So they've come from a very long ways off. And uh, how many were there? Uh, immediately, what number comes to your mind? You know, the number three comes to our mind. Uh, that is actually nowhere in the Word as we just read it. You don't see that three wise men came. Where do we actually get that number from? Uh, there are three gifts that, that are given to Jesus, but also there is, a, of course, a Christmas song, a Christmas carol. And it's really interesting how we, get our, we do derive our theology, what we believe about God and what we believe about the Scriptures, oftentimes from the songs that we sing. Uh, Brian has emphasized this before, but he, he looks at the songs, he reads the lyrics to make sure that they line up with what we believe theologically. It's very important because if, if you think um, how many men or how many wise men or how many kings came, you know, we think of a we three kings of Orient are, and we, this, it pops into our head, but actually that's not in the Bible. They're not kings, and there's, we don't know the number. So the, the word behold there actually probably alludes to the fact that there's more than just three people entering into Jerusalem, that there is, is quite a mass of people who have come from this long journey. They, they look different, they act different, they are dressed differently, and probably quite a big caravan has gone across the desert to enter into Jerusalem at this time. Um, now, the clearest point, though, of what is going on here at the very beginning is not necessarily how many there are. It's not necessarily the exact origin of where they've come from. But the most important part about what is happening here with these wise men is that they're not Jews. These are Gentiles that are coming to see the king of the Jews. Now, we put this in a chronological order, this series. And if we look back at Luke chapter 2, uh, I'll show, you, show it uh, to you today. But Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 32, we, we found last week where Joseph and Mary enter into the temple 
to present baby, the baby Jesus, and, um, and all of a sudden this, this random man, as far as they know, uh, lifts Jesus up, picks him up, and says, this is our salvation. Our salvation has come. And what does he say? I can, I can die in peace now because I've seen your salvation as he's talking to God and praising God. And in verse 32, this same prophecy that Simeon utters about the one he is holding. Again, remember, the, the temple is packed full of people. There's all types of people in there. But this one man, not a priest, not a high priest, uh, just a Simeon, uh, a man who, who was a righteous man, the Bible says, who loved God, obeyed God, he p- picks him up, realizes that this is the one and only Savior God would send. In verse 32, he says, He will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And now, just short time, a short time after this, we see this very thing taking place. And again, this was new information for Mary. This was new information for Joseph as well. Jesus was not just going to be the Savior of Jerusalem, the Savior of the Jews, but that He would be also a Savior, a light for even the non-Jewish people as well. And it took them quite a while, if you recall, even... As we go into the book of Acts, where they begin to connect all the dots and see that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jewish nation, but He's the Savior of you and I, people who are Gentiles, non-Jews as well. And right away, uh, and, and oftentimes we have the manger scenes where we, we, we see a lot of things that are actually not quite all there at the manger scene originally, but this is one of them. Uh, the, the three wise men, multiple wise men, however many there are, come and they don't come to the manger scene. We find that out here as we've read this. You might have picked it up, but they actually come to the house. They're not at the manger scene. And theologians say this probably happened a year to two years after Jesus was born. So we have th- this break of Simeon lifting Jesus up, saying, this is our salvation. He is the one. I can die in peace now. God had told him he would see the Messiah before he died, and now he could die in peace. He had seen the Messiah. And truly, the only way people can live or die in peace is with the Messiah. But, but now, that, that in that last prophecy about this one who has been born, uh, he will be a light for the Gentiles. And then we don't, don't read anything else until these wise men come to Jerusalem. And they are Gentiles. And they have come to see the King of the Jews. Now, throughout Scripture... Going back to Genesis, again, God lets us know, He lets us know through Abraham that the one coming from Abraham, the Messiah, would be a blessing to all nations. Uh, the book of Isaiah and Psalms as well talks about the fact that all nations will bring tribute to this one, to this king, to this Messiah. And then finally, it, we, we see the ultimate play out or fulfillment of this in the book of Revelation. But we see that He is the supreme. He is the ultimate king. And throughout Jesus' life... It is mainly a life of pure humility, but there's oftentimes glimmers, you might say, of glory where, where it is revealed that He is more than a man, and He is more than just one of us, that he is, he is deity, that He is God. Of course, the supernatural wonders, He's walking on water. You know, we can't do that. The transfiguration where He's on the mountain and He becomes as bright as light, brighter than the sun, and no one can even look at Him. It's this, this glimpse of majesty, but then He goes back to looking very human and goes back down the mountain with his disciples, right? And and even here at the very beginning, they have a baby. Uh, Simeon has prophesied this. They've heard from Gabriel. But now they're just in a house and they're having a very normal life. And all of a sudden, though, something very special is coming to town. It is 
these wise men who show up at their house. Uh, let me just read this to you quickly, just to sh- kind of show you. Again, this is a partial fulfillment of what God has been talking about all along, that the Messiah would have Gentiles, nations from all over coming to worship Him. He would not just be the Jewish Savior. But in Revelation 21, 24 through 26, the Bible says this, John said, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So again, we see this being fully fulfilled, that as Jews and Gentiles, as all nations that will submit, that will glorify, that will worship, and bring all they have to the King of Kings. And they, we see this partially done here at His birth, kind of like a hint, a partial fulfillment of who Jesus truly is. Uh, and the question they ask here, so where they're from is highly significant, more important than how many they, they how many there were or the exact location where they came from. The fact that they were Gentiles isn't very important, but the main purpose they have come is, of course, extremely important. Look at the question they ask here. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We see them looking for the king of the Jews. And we don't exactly know how, They've come across this information, but it does look like it is is purely supernatural. God has drawn them to him and he has drawn them to Jerusalem. And somehow, some way they have interpreted the special cosmological incident in the sky, whether it's a star, whether it's a comet, uh, different theologians go different ways on. Is it just a a natural phenomenon? Was it supernatural? But uh, either way, God is in control. And God has caused this to happen. They've interpreted it this way. And it is all exactly as God has laid out that things should take place. And now they've come and they are looking for the king of the Jews. Now, where else do we find this in the Bible? King of the Jews. Not in the Old Testament particularly, but in the New Testament. Describing Jesus. If, if we think about his whole life, the king of the Jews. You could really look at his life as being bookend by this statement. We see him referred to as the king of the Jews at the beginning. And then where else? It is at the end, right? They've come, they announce him king of the Jews, and we'll see the wise men truly treat him as the king of the Jews. But how does the nation treat him? Do they treat him as the king of the Jews? If you want to, turn with me. We're just going to look at where else this term is used. And it is, um, of course, used differently toward the end of Jesus' life than here at the beginning. It is used in mockery. It is not used in worship. But John chapter 18 is where I'm going to read from. I'm also going to read a portion of Matthew 27, if you'd like to look there with me. And of course, this is at the end of Jesus' earthly life. John 18, verse 33 says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. 
but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you who have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. We'll stop there at that section for a moment. But you see how this is used at the end of his life. They are not coming to worship the king of the Jews, but it is used in pure mockery. When Pilate presents him as the king of the Jews, they are infuriated. They don't want this king. They had rather a robber be released than this one who is called the king of the Jews. And we see here at the beginning of Jesus' life, the Gentiles come to worship from a thousand miles away. Jesus is right there in Bethlehem. Jerusalem is just, just around the corner, but yet none of them are coming to worship him. At the end of Jesus' life here, he is referred to, like I say, kind of a bookend. You have his life and his bookend by these statements, king of the Jews. He's originally used to worship him. Over here it's used to make fun of him, to mock him, to spit on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, right? And they push it in. They torture, they torment, they kill, they crucify this one who is born the king of the Jews because they don't like this king. And it's so important, I, I mention this often as we go through this study, but not to just see Jesus as just a baby or just an infant or just a toddler. But when we think of Jesus, if we only think of him as a baby, it can truly become idolatry. You can actually see a baby in a manger and it be a sin regarding your thoughts to it if you don't see that Him as the Messiah, if we don't see Him fully revealed as who He is. He is not just a baby. Of course, the baby grew up. The baby lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross as we're reading about. He is truly the King of the Jews. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead and reigns victoriously in heaven. He'll be the final judge over all men. So it's good to get this whole package in as we study the messenger and the Messiah. For one more uh, episode of this, I'm going to read Matthew 27. And some of you kind of mentioned it, it seemed like under your breath out there, this particular time at the end of Jesus' life where we see this term used again, the king of the Jews. Matthew 27, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and, keep, and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. That was the charge they held against him. The very reason the wise men have come from a long distance to worship him is the very reason that he is also put to death. Look at the mockery that continues. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and those who passed by derided or ridiculed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, 
For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So here we see these wise men who are coming to worship the king of the Jews. who they, They truly see him for who he is, which is extremely important. We saw this take place with Simeon and Anna last week. The temple is packed full of people. All the high ups are around, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the scribes. But these two nobodies, in, in our eyes, know, see everything. They see the child. They see that he is the Messiah, the Savior sent from God. And they acknowledge that he is more than a baby. He is truly the Savior of the world. Here, these men come and they see and they understand that this one being born, this one who is here, is not just a child. This is the Savior. This is the King of the Jews and will be their Savior as well. Um, Just just so you know, as we continue on those first few passages there, the reason they have come, we see, is we have come to worship Him. Let me flip back over to Matthew here. Matthew chapter 2. In number uh, in verse 2, they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose. Again, we don't know exactly the details of the star, but it is definitely significant enough that they were able to piece together the details. It was a supernatural revelation from God. And again, it is. A, it seems like it is a figurative literal light for the Gentiles that we saw Simeon prophesy that the Messiah, the Savior, would be a a light for the Gentiles. And here we have this light in the sky that is drawing them to the true light from God, Jesus, right? But they've come, and why have they come? They want to see the King of the Jews, but their overall purpose is they have come to worship Him. They have come to worship Him. They don't just see the baby. They don't just see this toddler in front of him. They see that he is worthy of their worship. Wow. Look at verse 3. Then Herod the king uh, heard this. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4. In assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Herod was troubled. It says all Jerusalem too. So these are little clues that kind of let us in on the fact that it was probably not just three guys coming in, three wise men, but probably an entourage, a caravan had arrived in Jerusalem. It was enough as they were asking questions. Now think about this. They've come from somewhere around a thousand miles away. So weeks and months spent in the desert in this caravan. They're following the star and they've come to worship the king of the Jews. They know this is real. They know this is legitimate, that there has been one born who is king, who is king of the Jews. So what do you think they would begin to ask when they get into Jerusalem, the headquarters of the Jews? They finally arrive. We're here, right? It's like you've been on a long journey. You've been on vacation, whatever. You finally arrive back home, and they've, they've been on this long journey. They finally arrive, so they begin to ask. That they don't have internet. They don't have telephones to call and ask. They just begin to talk to people. Hey, where's the king? The, the one born, the stars of total, where is he at? And they begin to ask around. They're looking for this king. Where is the king of the Jews? And all of a sudden, Herod, the, the king, and, and all of Jerusalem is troubled by this. They are irritated by this. They're troubled by this. Of course, Herod is troubled by it because he is the king. And he would, of course, as we know more about him, is extremely insecure. But to hear about another king that is going to be king of the Jews makes him extremely upset. And look who 
Herod gathers. Look at verse 4. He assembles all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. This would be uh, called the Sanhedrin. We know the Sanhedrin is also the very people who were were, uh, gathered together for the mock trial of Jesus to put him to death basically overnight. But these are considered the who's who in the Jewish religion. So Herod gathers them together in verse 4, and he, he asks them this question. He inquires of them or asks where the Christ was to be born. And look at verse 5. They know. They know. How do they know? They go back to Micah 5.2 that we started off with earlier in the sermon. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So the, the very priests, the, these, these people, the Sanhedrin, the high ups, the who's who of the Jewish nation come together. Herod asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? And, and the wise men are asking, where is the king of Jews? And, and they answer him. They say, he's to be born in Bethlehem. But how many of them even go to Bethlehem to check? Like no one does. Not one of them actually goes over to Bethlehem. The Gentiles who've come from afar find out where he's going to be born. They hear from this word of God, that God's word to the Jews, where he's going to be born, and they continue on their journey to go find him. Do the scribes, do the priests, do the high priests, do the Pharisees, do the Sadducees go with them to go find the... No, they're totally content with their religion, what they have going on. They don't really need this Messiah. They're happy in the religion that they have going on. And we find this still true today. People are content with their own self-religion, the religion that they have and the little things that they do that make them feel good before God, but they don't feel that they need a Savior. But they must have a Savior. Everyone must have a Savior if they're going to be saved from their sins. Of course, Herod summons them. He wants to know where, where he is going to be born, when he is to be born, was to be born as well, so that he can of course, get rid of this one that they're referring to as the king of the Jews. Uh, Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Obviously, Herod did not want to truly worship him. He wants to kill him, as we soon find out. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And again, we're not given all the clues about this cosmological incident that's happening, this light that is acting as a beacon to draw them from a thousand miles away to Jerusalem. But it does appear, as we read here, that, that it went away. It was not there. As they arrived in Jerusalem, they were given direction by the Word of God where to go to, after they hear where they are to go to, according to the word of God here, go to Bethlehem, the, it appears again. And we see this word, behold. Again, it's, it's excitement. It's, it's, it's energetic. It's in behold. In verse 9, the star that ha- they had seen uh, has appeared again and has appeared o- to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why did the wise men rejoice uh, with exceedingly great joy? 
Like this, this was huge. This was an event that had taken them a long time to arrive at. They've been guided, they believed, supernaturally, and we believe too as we see this. How else? Co- coincidence, there's no room for coincidence or accident with something like this. It is exact timing. But they have been supernaturally guided by whom they believe to be the creator of everything. The one who's in charge of the stars has guided them to this point. They have received revelation from God's word as to where this king of the Jews is to be born. And they see now the star resting over the home of where Jesus is. And they are filled, they are rejoiced with with exceedingly great joy. We see a very similar uh, word usage used from the angels. Uh, announces to the shepherds, right? He said, he said, this is the news that will bring news of great joy. And, and truly, this is the, the ultimate and only source that, that our hearts can be rooted in for pure and lasting joy in this life and in the afterlife. If our joy is rooted in people, uh, a spouse, a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, a child, uh, the home, the car, the situation, uh, how we feel each day, we will never have true joy. You'll find moments of happiness and it'll fluctuate up and down. But this is it. In the Messiah, we find exceedingly, more than enough, great joy. And this is what the wise men find as they enter in. True joy is found only by finding the Messiah. Verse 11, and going into the house, notice it is a house, the wise men do not come to the manger, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their country by another way. All right, let's look back here at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So again, in my mind, I like to picture the, the, the caravan, the multitudes, a pretty large number of these wise, extremely educated men coming from a long distance away. But they, I mean... We don't know, and I don't want to fill in too many blanks here and go beyond what the Scripture says, but, but we know that Mary was in the house, Jesus is in the house. Uh, homes were extremely small then, usually something like 12 by 15, you know, a little bitty area. Uh, they hear a knock at the door. Uh, Mary opens it up, perhaps, and all of a sudden, outside, all these foreigners from a long way off who look different, act different, uh, dress different, have all arrived at her front door, and they enter into the house. And what do they do? The manger scenes will sometimes picture the the wise men standing there or or kneeling down like a nice little gentleman would or something, maybe one knee. But but look what the Scripture says. They fell down and worshipped. It is the extreme way of submitting, of worshipping, where they get lower than the one they are worshipping. And as they're worshiping this child, they understand that he is more than a child, that he is going to be the king of kings, the king of the Jews. And they lower themselves lower than the child. They throw themselves on the ground. It's a dramatic thing that's taking place here. The door opens up, all the men enter in, and they throw themselves on the ground, and they worship this toddler at this point who is the king. 
And not only do they worship him, but they worship him by bringing gifts to him. This, we still do something very similar today, right? We, we give God our best. We give God what, uh, of our finances. When we, when we give in our offering, many of you give by PayPal and you give online through your banks or you give here by check and all that is excellent. Whatever way you want to do that is absolutely fine. But always know that this is what we are doing when, when we give. It is an act of worship. They've come to worship him. They, they throw themselves on the ground. They understand that he is above them and they bring him gifts. They bring him their best. And what do they bring? They bring the very best from their nations. But here we have um, three items that are not just the best, which was common. If you're coming from another country, you bring whatever this country is known for, the best of the best, and it's come from a long ways off, very hard to get. So they bring these items, but these items are extremely significant. And we don't really know if they understood the full significance of these items, but let's look through them. Of course, they bring him gold. Uh, They do know that he is royalty, that he is king, and they bring him gold to him a symbol of royalty. Jesus is the king, the ultimate king. He is God. He is the creator of everything. But here again, we have a hint of uh, who this toddler truly is, that he is the ultimate king. So they bring him gold. That was pretty easy for us to get our minds around. They also bring him frankincense. It's, it's, It's a fancy word that simply means pure incense, white incense, unadulterated, uh, uh, absolutely pure incense. It would be uh, highly uh, aromatic, smell very, very nice. And oftentimes we see as we look back at the Old Testament, this incense was used in in worshiping of God. The priest would use this incense to worship God. If we recall back earlier in this series, we saw where Zacharias went into the holy place. He put the incense over the hot coals. The incense goes up. Uh, The aroma lets people behind him that he is representing. He represents the nation of Israel. He is the the priest, goes in to pray for them. He puts the incense there. The aroma goes up. The smoke goes up. They understand that their prayers are going up to God. And this priest is representing them. So here we see frankincense used, which really seems to point to that Jesus is our our high priest. Uh, Frankincense was used in the tabernacle. It was used in the temple. It was used by the priest. And what do we see, especially in the book of Hebrews, we see all this come together where Jesus is portrayed as our ultimate priest. He is the one that represents us to God. He is the one that goes behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and presents himself as the ultimate sacrifice. So here we have these hints given that this toddler that they are bowing down and worshiping is is the king, but he is also our ultimate uh, priest as well. But also we have myrrh that is given uh, to him. Again, extremely expensive. It would be a very potent uh, perfume that would have been used uh, to, of course, smell good in, in small portions, very expensive. Usually only the rich of the rich could afford such a thing. But it was also used at a couple of different times in Jesus' life. It could be used just to smell, of course, very good. But also you could mix, mix it lightly uh, with wine to be used to numb the pain and as, as an anesthetic. And we saw just earlier that, that was done with Jesus on the cross. He was offered gall as a mixture of the myrrh and wine to numb the pain a little bit so the suffering could go a little bit longer, perhaps. But we see this hint of myrrh 
that he is worthy of something expensive. It's going to be beautiful that he is going to be an aroma, a great aroma with his whole life. But also there's this hint of hint of something else because myrrh was used for other things as well. And finally, at the person's end, it was used in burial. And we see this with Jesus as well. John 38, verse 30. Sorry, John. I will read verse 38 through 40. It says this. Uh, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body away. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound him in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So again, we have this kind of these bookends, right? We have, have myrrh being used at his, at his birth here as he's a toddler. He's, he's being presented with gold, with frankincense, with myrrh from afar. But also this, this myrrh is a hint of things to come, that this myrrh would also symbolize his suffering, it would symbolize his death as well. So these three, three gifts are presented to him here. Now let me read quickly uh, some of the, the latter part portions here of this passage. Let me look at verse 13 and read a little bit through here. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child of his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets out of Egypt. I called my son. So again, we see two diametrically opposed reactions to the Messiah. Some want to worship him. Some want to kill him. And still we find this this true today. How do people desire to kill him today? They try to kill Jesus by not acknowledging him for who he truly is. They try to redefine him and they do that so that they can kill him in the same essence. All right. They try to do away with him. So people still to this day, Simeon's last prophecy, it said that some will rise and some will fall based on Jesus. In other words, some will be raised from the dead. Some will not. Uh, Some will go into heaven. Some will not based upon him. Simeon's last prophecy said that Jesus would be a symbol of opposition. And here we have it happening already. Some are trying to kill him. Some are coming from a long ways to worship him. Uh, Verse 16, well, verse 16, let me continue on. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, they were wise indeed, uh, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to uh, to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here we see Herod has grown, grown, grown so furious that there is another one that could be more powerful than he is, that he sends soldiers in to do away with all the children who are of this age and under. He desires to be ruled only by himself. We see this as a root of mankind in general, that our ultimate sin is pride. 
Our ultimate sin is that we want to rule ourselves. We don't want someone higher than us. We don't want the king of kings. The Jews didn't want the king of kings. Even Adam and Eve, if we go all the way back and we look at their first sin, what was promised to them by Satan? You know, take and eat of this. and God, has, God hasn't told you the truth. Eat of this and you will be like God. Genesis verse 3 through 4. They desired no one above them. And we see this played out here with Herod. He wanted no one above him. He wanted no one to be a king over him. He wanted to be self-ruled. He wanted himself to be in charge. And we still find this today. People are either come to worship the king or they try to be king themselves. We either are the wise men who submit and glorify and worship Jesus or we try to kill him. Look around. Jesus is the sign to be opposed. You cannot be neutral towards Jesus. You go, oh, he's just a good guy. He was just, just a prophet. By doing that, you're trying to kill him. You either worship him or you try to kill him. You're either the wise man or you are Herod. He is the sign. And everyone is either worshiping him or trying to kill him. His whole life we see this. Even upon his death, some are rejoicing, some are mourning. Even as he ascends into heaven, we find those are, some are worshiping him, right? But even those who are worshiping him, the others that tried to kill Jesus come in and try to kill them as well. It's continually going on. Uh, let's finish this up. Verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Here, the king who tried to kill Jesus, we see, has died. How, how entertaining is this? Interesting to me. The very one who thought he was supreme, that he was the ultimate one that was trying to kill the king of the Jews, the one that he should have been worshiping, has now died. It's, it's all interesting how it plays out because everything in this world is so fickle. Everything that we own, our, our material things, our bodies as well, our lives as well, we will all die. But the very one that he was trying to kill uh, died as well, but lives forever. And the very one that he was trying to kill is not only the king of kings, but is the very one that he himself, Herod, will face in judgment one day. The very one who is king of kings, the, the infant that he was trying to murder, will be the one who judges Herod's soul. That Herod himself will ultimately see who Jesus truly is. Let me read this, Luke uh, chapter 2, verse 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, we've looked at this before, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Herod kingdom, Herod's kingdom ends the moment his heart stops beating. Jesus' kingdom never, ever ends. Why? Because he's more than a man. He is God. He is deity. His kingdom will never end. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11 says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is what we are to do as the wise men. We 
bow down spiritually. We submit ourselves fully to His Lordship, that He is the King of all. And someday, all, even the enemies of Jesus, even Herod himself, who tried to kill Him, will understand, but it will be too late for Herod then, that Jesus is the ultimate King of kings. Wise men, wise women, and wise children alike worship the King. Let's pray. God, thank you for letting us know that Jesus is indeed the King and there is no one else like Him. You drew these wise men from a long way off, Gentiles, to come and to worship, to bear witness that this toddler was the King of kings, the Messiah, the Savior. We thank you, God, that we can worship you because our high priest who was presented frankincense that day has ultimately presented us to you. He's sacrificed himself so that he represents us to you and that we have we are now at peace with you. We have a joy, exceedingly great joy. There is no other joy to be found on this earth truly except in the Messiah. May our joy be rooted in who he is, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life that we could not live, that it's his record we get, not ours at judgment, that he has died on the cross. He took the punishment for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. It is him that we will face But we don't have to be nervous about that because it is his record that he has given us. That's why he is our savior. We thank you, God, for saving our souls through the Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.